Brussels Bytes, a podcast about technology, digital society and European policy. Brought to you by the Martin Centre with Dimitar Lilkov. Hi friends, this is Dimitar and a belated Happy New Year from all the Martin Center team. New Year, new me, goes the American saying. Back home in Bulgaria, we're not that optimistic about self-discovery and radical self-improvement, so we like to say simply, New Year, new luck. And this is my wish for all of you. Do whatever brings you joy and stay lucky. Brussels Bites is also very lucky to have a fantastic guest here with us today, who will walk us through some of the darkest corridors of Facebook's company behavior from the last couple of uh, months and years, and what we can hopefully do in terms of societal response here in Europe. A conversation about whistleblowers, dark algorithms, and a little about European legislation. My guest today is Angela Müller, who is a team lead for policy and advocacy at Algorithm Watch and senior policy and advocacy manager at Algorithm Watch Switzerland. Angela holds a PhD in law and also a master's in political and economic philosophy. Our guest is also a member of the Digital Society Initiative at the University of Zurich. Angela, it's a pleasure to have you here. Yeah, thanks a lot for the invitation. It's great to be here. So let's um, let's kick it off and maybe tell our listeners a bit more about the work of Algorithm Watch and your goals when it comes to advocacy in Europe. Yeah, thanks. So Algorithm Watch is an advocacy organization, as you said, and we're focusing on the use of algorithmic decision-making systems, which we um, abbreviate with ADM systems and um, its impact on individuals and society. So we're a civil society watchdog and what we do is evidence-based advocacy. Does, that means like we collect evidence through uh, research and journalism, and then we use this evidence to um, develop informed demands and proposals um, how to actually create a governance framework for the use of ADM systems and um, a governance framework that actually benefits individuals and society. So this includes we develop tools, we foster public debate, and of course, we develop policy recommendations and advocate for them towards decision makers. I was um, going through your foundational manifesto and something which um, really struck me is that I quote, your organization uh, warns that automated decision-making systems is a fact of life today, and it will be a much bigger fact of life tomorrow, end of quote. I relate very strongly with these words um, and the fact that we need an active public discourse on these issues. Why are these automated decision-making mechanisms or ADMs becoming so pervasive and what are the biggest challenges for our society today? Yeah, so um, what we see today, um, first of all, is that the use of ADM systems is really increasing at full speed. So not only in China and the US, um, as it's often portrayed, I think, but also in Europe. And we've shown this, for example, in our automatic society report, in which we did like a, a mapping of ADM systems used um, in European countries in collaboration with a network of local researchers. And um, when you look at the evidence found, you could actually argue that, um, you know, the report should not even be called automating, but rather automated society. 
So because this really seems to be the status quo. Um, the use of these systems is, as I said, increasing both in the public and the private sector. And another result is that um, this use is really characterized by much opacity. So where the systems are used, by whom, and for what purpose, all uh, remain largely black box. It's very hard for individuals, but also for uh, researchers to gather systematic knowledge. And what this means for us as a society is really that um, we cannot have an evidence-based debate, or at least there are limits to this. Um, and of course, then it's also hard to do evidence-based policymaking. So, I mean, ADM systems can certainly be of great benefit for us, but what we see at the moment is that this is not routinely um, the case. Uh, many systems, you know, do not live up to what they've promised, do not really benefit individuals and society, but rather bring uh, risks with them or even harm. And um, this ranges from discriminatory effects to other kinds of unjustified um, injustices and unequal treatment to undermining autonomy and the common good. Um, and maybe to illustrate, for example, um, there has been a lot of debate about facial recognition systems, which are today widely used um, also in Europe. For example, they can have discriminatory effects in that they are less accurate in recognizing um, faces with darker skin due to the fact that they've been trained with uh, data that was not representative and contained more white faces, for example. But still, this is only part of the problem because even if this um, could eventually be solved at the technological level, then we still would have to ask ourselves whether, um, you know, we would want the use of these systems, for example, in public space in a democratic society, since um, it cannot only violate rights of privacy, but also have chilling effects that could deter people from, um, for example, participating in demonstrations um, and so on. So just in a nutshell, ADM systems are always put to use in a certain societal context, and we should look at them always with this context in mind. And um, there are no easy fixes at the technological level that would solve these issues, but it's really a task um, for us as a society. Yeah, and um, quick follow-up, because your work involves uh, public outreach, communicating with, with stakeholders. How aware are national, specifically national policymakers, aware of these, uh, of these facts? And how is the public responding um, in, based on your experience? This topic might be quite prominent in the European Brussels bubble, let's say, but I'm, I just wonder what's your impression of what's happening on the ground? I think it's very hard to tell, uh, to tell in general terms because it very much depends. Um, it depends on individuals actually working for say public administration, but also it depends on uh, the ministries. So um, what we see, for example, is that many, many states, including EU member states, but also other states do not, yet have in a way a consolidated position on how to go about that and how to approach the issue because the different ministries um, have different um, of course priorities that's always the case uh, in policy making but still I think this topic is so new and um, it requires a lot of expertise that is not always there of course um, very understandably and this is just means a challenge also for um, national governments to really come up with with approaches um, to the issue. Yeah, and maybe now let's 
um, frame our discussion on a bit more practical level. Um, I met uh, Angela during a discussion on the Facebook files uh, in the Facebook controversy, which transpired last uh, in, in the end of, of uh, 2021 after uh, Ms. Frances Hogan's uh, relevations as a, as a whistleblower. Now, it's been a couple of months um, since, since these, these things uh, transpired and the dust maybe has settled a bit. So I just would like to invite you to walk us through of what actually happened last year when we talk about the, the Facebook files, when we talk about algorithms, and what was your engagement on that front? Yes, so um, the Facebook files were released by a whistleblower, Francis Hogan, as you said, um, who uh, worked for the company before. And um, she revealed quite um, substantial information on how the platform deals with um, issues you know that have um, really an effect on individuals and society and I can maybe um, list some examples so what she revealed was that for example Facebook created um, a whitelist of high profile users politicians celebrities and so on and it seems to shield these accounts from the site's rules and enforcement so it allows um, harmful content the widest possible reach when it comes to these high profile accounts. Another example is that um, internal research showed that Facebook was aware that Instagram, its platform Instagram that also belongs to the Facebook um, enterprise, can have harmful effects on teen mental health, especially teen girls and eating disorders and so on. And still the company withheld this research from um, academics and lawmakers who requested it, citing, for example, privacy concerns and also publicly downplayed these negative effects. Um, another example, Facebook employees have flagged human traffickers and drug turtles in developing countries who use the platform to carry out their illegal operations. And um, the company seemed to have failed to adequately police the problem. And the last example, because you talked of algorithms, is that um, an algorithmic change to Facebook's recommender systems happened like three years ago um, that was intended to encourage more, as they call it, meaningful social interactions, actually turned out to fuel more disinformation, toxic content and divisiveness. So um, that was like internal documents um, show that Facebook was really aware of the problem and they had um, a team on it and the team proposed changes uh, to the algorithm to really slow the spread of this, um, of these contents. And then Facebook largely did not adopt these recommendations on the grounds that it, you know, would hurt user engagement. So these are examples, um, of course, selective examples to show what was actually revealed by Francis Hogan. Yeah, and it's it's a striking sense of deja vu, to be really honest. Um, I've been part of the discussions surrounding Facebook disinformation, malign influence, polarization of uh, public discourse at least since 2018 here here in, in, in Brussels. And I've heard so many commitments in the last three or four years from the company um, about, you know, let's say stop monetizing from hate or stop monetizing from the uh, divisive discourse and so on and so forth involving the research community. And here a very, you know, short and direct question, has Facebook actually improved its practices on all of these fronts in the last couple of years? Because what I'm hearing from you right now, it seems to me that actually it's even getting worse, or? I think uh, the main problem is we cannot really tell. And that's really um, the core of the problem. So what, I mean, Francis Hogan's revelations were more extensive than other revelations before. And uh, because the information is really very broad and it provides conclusive evidence that, um, you know, 
Facebook does what you've just mentioned, that it really prioritizes profit over other stated goals and that it has a choice in doing so. Um, but I think it's still, the problem is still a bit that these are um, anecdotes and uh, we do not really have systematic and um, evidence on, on how this, but also other platforms influence our public sphere, what impact they have on individuals and society. So there's still much, much speculation going on. And, um, you know, all these revelations are very important, but also these are anecdotes that also um, are shared by people, for example, whistleblowers who have to put themselves at great personal risks and so on. So I think that's really the core of the problem that there we, we lack systematic um, knowledge and assessment of the situation today. Yes, I fully agree. And another thing I, I worry and I suspect here is that maybe, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe you also have a sense of public fatigue about all of these findings. I mean, Cambridge Analytica, um, election manipulation or interference was a huge topic years ago. And this brought, let's say, at least a certain amount of, of political reaction, hearings, uh, investigations and so forth. But now in 2021, 2022, is there a sense that the general public is shrugging off these concerns as if, you know, this is yesterday's news? Um, in a way, I think we can see both. On the one hand, I totally agree. There's this um, public fatigue. And I think it really has to do with this, um, as I just said, being anecdotes. You know, that, um, you know, it gives us an impression of how this could um, be and how the impact of the platforms could be. But in the end, we don't really know. We know that's just one story of a thousand that has come to light. So um, I think this a bit contributes to this public fatigue. On the other hand, I think we can also see that we have more and more public debate on the topic and on how to go about it. And that also, of course, has to do that policymakers increasingly address the problem and more and more civil society engagement is happening. So there's also pressure from this side. And um, I think platforms also, you know, feel that they um, have to justify more what they are doing. So I think uh, we can see both at the moment. Um, but I totally agree that it doesn't really help um, to have more and more such stories when we still lack uh, the more systematic evidence. Though, of course, it greatly helped what um, what Francis Hogan revealed, because, um, you know, it really, really gives us an insight into how the platform itself is handling it. And it also shows that um, such research is actually possible because internal research seems to be possible. Yeah, great. Let's let's move exactly in this direction from anecdotes to actual research or actual evidence, actual facts. I've been involved in a number of internal calls or briefings, with even, even with company representatives at times from Facebook last couple of years, and there's always been this pledge, yes, we'll involve more researchers, there's going to be more transparency, we will commit more people who speak smaller, um, uh, smaller European languages, uh, especially in Central and Eastern European, so we can manage our content better. Now, your organization, and this is very interesting, you had your own research project on, on Instagram and, and the, the way the Instagram feed affects, affects people. Walk us through what happened when you actually tried to do something practical uh, about Insta and about Facebook's uh, um, operations. 
Yes, yeah, so um, as I said, one of the activities we do is journalistic research, and we use that, for example, to shed light into platforms algorithms. Um, so we had a pro project going on that was called uh, towards a monitoring of Instagram, and it was actually a data donation project. So users could install a plugin to their browser and it would collect the data on their Instagram feed and then they would donate it to us. And we could then analyze it. Um, so it's like a reverse engineering method. So we we weren't actually working with data provided by the platforms. That is um, different with other researchers. So our project had three parts. Um, and the last part of, so the first part was like, does the algorithm incentivize people to show naked skin? And we found indications that this seems to be the case. The second was like in the Netherlands, where we found out that politicians do better when they post private content uh, images uh, of their faces uh, and so on. And the third part was ahead of the federal elections in Germany. And we wanted to find out how um, the algorithm actually rates content of different uh, political parties. Uh, we also did this in collaboration with media partners. So while the third part uh, was running, we got a message from Facebook um, requesting us to actually stop our data donation project and um, saying, you know, if we didn't, they might take more formal steps. So um, I think the way they put it was to say, we might be subject to additional enforcement action, which um, of course is a nice euphemism for taking legal action. So uh, we were confronted with that message. And of course that was not an easy decision for us to take as a civil society organization. Um, there were like several factors involved in our decision, but one was of course, what does it mean for us as an organization to face a confrontation with a company with more or less endless resources? Um, even so, sorry to, to, to jump in. Even though that your project was your own, the data was voluntarily given by users and so on, right? Yes. Um, the, Facebook still argued that this um, violates privacy of third users and it goes against um, their terms of services. Even though, as you say, we um, only use data donated to us voluntarily. So um, against this background, we then um, finally came to the decision to end the project. Um, but at the same time, other researchers also had their projects uh, shut down by Facebook. So against this background, we then decided to make uh, this public and um, to show that really this kind of pressure on external research also happens in Europe and that it's a pattern. So that it's really research on um, you know, our public discourse and how that's influenced by platforms and um, research that is then stopped by these very platforms. So we published a story on our experience with Facebook and actually turned this into a campaign. Uh, we sent an open letter to European policymakers um, asking them to protect public interest research on platforms via the Digital Services Act that they um, are still negotiating. And it was a very successful, signed by a lot of organizations, by over 6,000 individuals, um, by researchers, and we got a lot of media coverage. And it was also successful substantially. So our core demand uh, was to enable um, data access actually for researchers through the DSA and to expand it also to non-academic researchers, so including civil society. And that was then taken up by um, the parliament, of course, not only because of us, um, but also of the many organizations um, who supported us in this demand. So just, just to recap, I mean, it's fascinating. <clears throat> Half a decade after 
all of these controversies started after so much input we've had whistleblowers and testimonies not only is a company like facebook not giving additional transparency not providing access to the independent research community in what's actually happening but they are also aggressively moving against the research community which is drastically less funded to say the least compared compared to the the, the firepower these companies have so i mean it's just fascinating when you realize the discrepancy between public discourse and what's happening on the ground um now do you think that your campaign got the proper reaction especially in in, in brussels and i'm using this as a segue because right now the digital services act um is, is being hammered out. There's going to be progress in, in, in Parliament soon. And I guess that an organization like Algorithm Watch uh, puts a lot of expectations in the DSA um, that maybe this type of legislation can address some of these problems we'll be discussing now. So what are your thoughts on that? Um, yes, the DSA is definitely a priority area of ours uh, right now. So, and I think um, the Digital Services Act really has great um, potential. So, as you said, it's still in the negotiation phase, and we'll see what the final version will actually be. Uh, it's also true that the Parliament, for example, um, did take up some of our demands, but um, less so with the Council. So, let's see how this um, is going to turn out. But it what it really tries to do, the DSA, is um, to shed light on platforms' conduct and on um, recommender systems, on the way they treat users and complaints and so on. So the DSA itself will certainly not be able to hold platforms accountable, but it may provide the basis for us as a society to do so insofar as it enables this transparency. And transparency is here really the necessary first step, though, as I said, not uh, sufficient, of course, but it's a necessary first step. And I think um, that's critical. For us as an organization, we uh, really focused on this provision on data access that um, the DSA includes as Article 31. Um, so where researchers can, via a coordinator, um, get access to data. And I think, you know, research projects of ours, as I said, um, and as we experience, are very important, can give important hints, but they are, of course, only very small parts of the puzzle. And um, I think this Article 31 in the DSA would really give us the opportunity to get more um, of this systematic research on platforms impact and, as I said, less anecdotes. Um, and, you know, it's is also important then that this data access happens in a meaningful and reliable way. As you said, platforms often um, already today provide um, data to researchers. And they say, of course, that they're um, putting a lot of efforts into that. But what we um, hear from other researchers, because we ourselves um, do not really or have not really worked uh, with platforms directly um, provided by, uh, with data directly provided by the platforms, what we hear is that the data they provide is not really provided in a meaningful and reliable way because, um, yeah, they cannot really use it for their research. And this is, um, of course, something that um, needs to change. Yeah, I just want to remind our audience on um, the code of conduct, uh, this piece of self-legislation, uh, self-monitoring, self-regulation on uh, this info where the commission basically encourages different big tech companies to submit uh, various data points of what they're actually doing in the last couple of years and 
I, I've spoken with um, experts from the institutions themselves, and they said that they just receive some type of bulky Excel file with some snippets of information, or they sometimes they even get uh, submerged into data and nobody can really read it. Or what usually Facebook does is just tailor-made sense, tailor-made information, which gives you a little glimpse, but it's not it's not the full picture here. Um, so when we talk about the involvement of, of stakeholders, the, the research community, in the last couple of years, we've seen Brussels make a big effort to push uh, leg novel legislation in digital domain. And DSA, of course, is only one, one part of it. The AI Act, also the um, Digital Markets Act, all of, these, all of these acronyms. What is your impression here, Angela, when it comes to Brussels-based policymaking and involving, indeed, the research community? Do you think that your voice is being properly heard? Are we repeating certain mistakes when it comes to this type of legislation? And how optimistic are you on, on the bigger picture here about Europe's approach overall? Yeah, that's uh, not an easy one, I'd say. So on the one hand, I think it's, to start with, certainly important to really acknowledge like the proactive approach in a way that Brussels take. Because it just shows the awareness that we need to create and discuss these governance frameworks um, that I referred to right at the beginning. These governance frameworks for a beneficial use of AI-based systems. And that's a task that we as a society and um, with policymaking have to address. So um, even apart say, of its substantial outcome, I think it has um, this agenda setting effect. So it really puts tech policy further up on the agendas, political agendas worldwide, but also I'd say the agenda of public discourse. And I think that's really what we need. Um, on the other hand, I think, and as also discussed today, there is unfortunately still this certain limit to how um, evidence-based policymaking can be in the field. Um, since uh, we have this lack of evidence. And also, of course, there's a certain asymmetry involved. So tech companies are, um, you know, of course, providing the results of their internal studies to policymakers, um, fueled by enormous sums of money they put into lobbying, um, but which, of course, are then not studies done in the public interest, but in some very particular interest. And they show what the companies, um, in a way, wants them to show. So. We definitely have a power asymmetry also when it comes to private and public interests being lobbied for in Brussels. Um, and I think that's really uh, an issue we should uh, be aware of. But in the fields of digital policy still, I think like civil society has so much to contribute. It's really, really growing. And um, it can especially be also this bridge builder to people actually affected by these um, ADM systems. So all of us actually. Um, so we're putting a lot of efforts into it. And um, yeah, just, you know, in order to make sure we get there where ADM systems are really then used to our benefit. I think um, Brussels narrative is that, um, you know, we need people's trust and then we can also foster innovation. Um, I think we just have to be aware that innovation is not a goal in itself. Innovation is um, highly important and we all need that, but innovation should also be ultimately in the interest of people. And um, that's why I think, yeah, we need a lot of uh, more civil society efforts on this front. I absolutely agree. Um, just a key takeaway from what you just said, the, the, the huge power asymmetry when it comes to, to interest representation and the fact that, and hopefully with the work of organizations like yours, 
we can actually embed some fundamental values in the chaotic digital universe, which is growing and growing every day around us. Now, th this has been a really, really fascinating conversation. We have only a couple of minutes left. So in, in closing, I would like to zoom out a bit from our well-known and cozy European reality <clears throat> and take the macro view. Um, there's interesting news coming from China, uh, which is introducing new and extremely strict rules for algorithms for digital companies. Bans violating against something which violates Chinese law online. Um, algorithm recommendation services would need to apply for specific licenses and they cannot promote fake news in China. And they're trying to also give more control to users in deleting or setting specific private tags uh, related with uh, algorithmic uh, systems for recommendations. Now, all of this is still in the making, and I'm not the one to praise Chinese digital policies in any way whatsoever. In this podcast, also in my writing, I've spoken strongly against the Chinese model of digital authoritarianism. However, it seems that the Chinese are onto something here because they're thinking is extremely realist and they understand that pervasive algorithms can become a danger for public discourse and even touch upon national security. So in closing, I'd just like to poke your brain a bit on, on Europe's uh, future positioning in all of this. How do you see Europe in this wider world of US Wild West tech regulation, let's say, or lax privacy standards online on the one hand, and China's draconian digital dystopia, on the other hand, where the state monitors almost everything. How can Europe thrive in this setting? Yeah, so I think, um, first of all, it just shows um, what we've discussed before, that this agenda setting is really there. Like uh, the topic, you know, gets high on the agendas everywhere and approaches are being developed everywhere. I think it's even um, and also important to say that also multilateral fora like the UNESCO or the Council of Europe are really addressing the issue of how to um, make sure the use of ADM systems, um, AI-based systems is beneficial. So um, I think, you know, that's a good thing. We're really starting to discuss it um, in different fora. Um, and then when it comes to, you know, China versus Europe versus US, I don't think there's really this um, dichotomy happening. So um, I, you know, have some doubt about this narrative um, that it's really two um, different approaches because I just think, you know, we need governance frameworks. Um, what is important to me is that these governance frameworks are comprehensive. So of course, um, China now is focusing a lot on private uses um, of AI-based system. And of course, the comprehensive approach, I would say, must include, of course, uh, public uses of AI-based system as well. So, um, but, you know, without going into detail um, on the Chinese approach, I would just say um, for us also as an organization, it's just not so much about digital sovereignty of a state or a region, but it's really about the digital autonomy of individuals. And that's what we want to foster um, because I think that's really, um, you know, the foundation of how we deal with these issues. Of course, we have to find sustainable approaches to using technology also at a political level. But in the end, I think the goal should be that we're um, less dependent, be it on a particular state or on private companies, but that we have more public participation, more public engagement and um, yeah, more digital autonomy of individuals in the end. 
the importance of digital autonomy of individuals. I think this is a great way to finish our conversation today. This has been the voice of Angela Müller from Algorithm Watch. Check out their work, check out their research. They're a fascinating organization. Thank you very much, Angela, for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. And um, dear listeners, thanks for tuning in. Join us next time when we will talk about 5G developments and how can actors such as the EU and the US best position themselves globally. Thanks. See you soon. That was today's episode of Brussels Bites. 